I've come to communicate with my user. Difficult proposition. Difficult proposition at best. My user has information that could... Well, could make this a free system again. All that is visible must grow beyond itself and extend into the realm of the invisible. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and... We fight for the users. <laughs> I've made him watch a movie. Oh, you didn't make me do anything. I wanted to. I always want to on this. Yeah, well, this is one of those where technically it's a movie that I had to choose because it was from my youth, but it was definitely... Uh, we're going to do a podcast about this, aren't we? <laughs> From well, Ian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not that I blame you for a moment. It's Tron. Talking about Tron. Walt oh. Disney movie from 1982. I love this film so much. <laughs> I'm so just going to ignore any, like, holding my opinions to the end that I usually try to. To put it into perspective, my friends in high school got me Tron on vhs just because having the white clamshell copy as well as the dvd copy already well used in my house but having that was a fun thing for me <laughs> i am a i need to own this movie more than one time in more than one format kind of person so you can see this is a movie not only from my youth but also from ian's youth again i'd say this is one of those things that that uh, gave rise to this podcast oh, as absolutely. much as anything else. I don't remember when you showed it to me, but I definitely remember that this was a thing my dad was showing me that he thought I'd be excited about. And then I was, he was absolutely <laughs> right because I was excited. But it was when, I want to say it was like elementary school. Oh, I'm sure it was. It was early because yeah. as much as I love Tron, I'm going to also be the first to admit it doesn't have a very deep plot at times. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't need one, I would doesn't say. Need but you're one. right. It, it does not. But uh, yeah, Tron, uh, Disney 1982, and in case you're not familiar with the movie, for one thing, there will be spoilers as usual when we're talking about a, a movie, but the premise of Tron has to do with the fact that most of the movie takes place inside a mainframe computer system. Oh my word. Our hero, Kevin Flynn. Played by Jeff Bridges. Played by Jeff Bridges. All good thoughts, prayers, and vibes to, to Jeff Bridges, though, given the news that uh, uh, we've heard recently about his health. Yeah. We love Jeff Bridges in so many things. We're, we're rooting for him. But this was um, prob probably one of the first things I saw Jeff Bridges in. And yeah, he plays Kevin Flynn, hotshot hey. computer programmer, hacker in the old school, irreverent, not rules-bound computer expert kind of sense. Absolutely. His entire initial setup is interesting because he had been working for NCOM as one of their programmers and then on the side started developing other programs only to have that stolen. And then he decides to go run an arcade and kind of plot a revenge is yeah. the best way I can describe it. Right. Yeah. His work product, these uh, uh, record-breaking video games, arcade games for the t at the time, mostly, were stolen, and somebody else took the credit for him, and he got kicked out of NCOM. And, uh, and yeah, he, it starts out as a revenge story, doesn't it? It really does. And it starts out as a revenge heist story. Although, yeah, I guess I would say not as much revenge as justice. He wants the truth to be out there, and he knows the truth will vindicate him, and it's not that he wants to hurt the people who hurt him, but he wants the truth to be known and justice to be done. They've got to sneak in back into NCOM and uh, get to a terminal that can access the mainframe with the right clearance so that he can pull the initial, like, that's what I was not sure of, like, the initial, like, registry information about the files in question to see which, like, account initially created the, the file. Yeah. He's, they, like, trying to find the thing he needs and uh, uh, click properties. But this is, of course, before uh, standard graphical interfaces. It's all well, text-based. Yeah. He's looking for the audit records of these spe specific files, his source code for these uh, 
for these video games. And he's trusting the fact that the audit data has not been altered. Yeah, that's the which thing. Which is a bit of a reach, I think. Because the enemy that he has at Encom and the person who stole his work and got him kicked out and who is now like an, I think, executive vice president or something, is uh, a Mr. Dillinger. Yes. Who is actually in league with the MCP, the Master Control Program, which is a program inside the Encom mainframe which has taken on, apparently, it is emergent intelligence, and it is absorbing other programs and other capabilities. And this makes more sense when we get into the metaphors inside the mainframe later. And the MCP is looking to essentially take over the world. Even Dillinger is nervous when the MCP talks about trying to take over the programs that it finds in the Pentagon next. Yeah, it's very much a like optimization program it is it is what if what if quickbooks decided that it was going to control everything and started trying to eat your tivo oh preview for a future IWMP podcast i believe i've already shown you this but we're going to have to talk about colossus the forbin project sometime soon oh i'm looking forward to that so let's put that aside but that'll make sense uh, in reference to tron but yeah, it starts out he's looking for this this information inside the uh, uh, the Encom mainframe, and at first he's trying to do that from the outside. Yeah, and his efforts to do this from the outside are the first glimpses we get of the main conceit of this movie, which is that computers are alive on the inside. Com- yeah, the inside the mainframe is this world, and every program is an individual represented by a person, really, as far as we see them on screen. So he creates this program called Clue, CLU, to to get in, get past the data security inside the ENCOM mainframe, and find the uh, the file information that he wants that are gonna, is going to prove that he created Space Paranoids and other popular games. And we see inside the world of the computer, Clue, driving around in this tank, which is from one of these video games. And dodging these recognizer uh, uh, machines that are from another video game. And taking commands from Flynn, who's on the outside typing away. And every one of these, uh, um, these inputs that Flynn types, we see it from Clue's point of view, or the shots of Clue, as he's receiving these messages. He's receiving these, these verbal commands from his user. And of course, he does what his users his user wants him to do. That's his reason for being. Absolutely. And one thing that's fun is the fact that Clue, since it was programmed by Flynn, looks like Flynn. Doesn't necessarily have Flynn's personality. He's very. I have one job to do. Uh, he's kind of a uh, you know a non-com military kind of person. He's he's got some autonomy, but he is there to do a job, and that's all he's thinking about. So there's some really fun work for the actors here because they get to play different personalities and different characters, but the fact that it's the same actor in the same movie is part of the story because it's it's a, a lineage aspect. It's a, you can trace back who made what where, which brings up other questions I'm going to have to ask later, but I'm I'm liking that part, and it means that you're going to see a lot of bridges in this movie. There's a lot of Jeff Bridges here, but it's fun. <laughs> now, he doesn't he does not succeed in getting he, he's apparently he's been trying for a long time to get this information from the outside. He does not succeed, but he has friends who are still at Encom. Mm-hmm. And they're played by Bruce Boxleitner and Cindy Morgan. And they help him get access to terminals inside. They get him into the Encom facility create some distractions on the system while they uh, he gets access to the system from one of their terminals in the laser bay. Yeah, that's the thing, in the laser bay, because I can't tell what Encom works on, which seems to be a bit of everything. They do video games, but they're also doing laser technology, and they're doing some form of large-scale like uh, business computing. And 
yeah, they're they're apparently just all kinds of software, accounting software, scientific software, and also a lot of data storage. And from the bits of technobabble we see about what they're actually doing in the laser bay, it has to do with it's it's essentially a super deluxe scanner, but far beyond that. In that it will take a, a physical object, digitize it as in remove it from the physical world, but capture all of its digital information and store it as computer data. And then it can restore it to the, uh, to the, the physical world. Essentially, they've, in trying to do something about computer storage, they have figured out the, the, uh, a, a teleportation device as well, I would think, or a rep- replicating device. Absolutely, because once it's a file, in theory, you could, I guess, run it again, although I don't know where the material would come from. or we also wind up with the very severe ship of Theseus problem as to whether or not like the orange shot with the laser and then rebuilt by the laser is the same orange whole big philosophical questions. We've got a whole other division of NCOM we'd have to build for that sort of pondering alone. But this is like, that's it, it. This movie starts out looking like, like weird, fun graphical metaphor for a heist story and this is like the part that's absolutely pure sci-fi i could even i could have believed everything else at first like in the opening is like oh this is what it's like to be doing this with this program but no no no, that is what's going on with this program because look at the laser right this this is not our world in this sense so yeah that's the one ridiculous couldn't happen it's clearly not a metaphor it's clearly actually happening in the world of the uh, of the story the quote-unquote real world mm-hmm. and they do they they have like the world inside the computer and then when they go out to where we, we're seeing kevin flynn and his friends it's in the real world says the caption yeah but uh yeah kevin flynn does not stay in the real world no because the mcp does not want somebody like kevin flynn poking around what he's doing in there and what he's got stored in there in the NCOM mainframe. So he zaps Kevin Flynn. Very good points for them. Uh, as a person who's got, who's familiar with FDM 3d printers, this, the laser is very good at actually running a proper scan across his <laughs> digitizing frame until it gets to the legs, at which point it splits into two beams. And I'm just like, <laughs> Oh, seriously. They were, were so close. They were so close to making this look absolutely reasonable in terms of a scanning pattern, but you just had to split it there to make this entire sequence move a little faster. And this is all, of course, just the the, the setup, because the goal of the movie, story-wise, is to get Kevin Flynn digitized and into the world of the computer. Absolutely. And this is and once he is in the world of computer, this is where Tron does the most amazing thing, in my opinion. And it so seamlessly transitions between the sci-fi story out in the real world and the absolute pure high fantasy story with glowing lights inside the computer, because that's what it is. Yeah, it has more in common with Krull than with most uh, sci-fi. Oh, it, yeah, this it is, is... It is epic fantasy. The landscape is just inside the NCOM mainframe. Absolutely. It is full of chosen heroes and wizened sages and giant fights of magical powers it's amazing and yet the 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 landscape and the design is all neon outlined hard edges kind of a polished proto or pre-cyberpunk sort of look to it oh yeah there's i'm i'm amazed how much original tron looks like apple store at times because it's mostly (laughs) white with glowing blue accents one of the really cool things that they do what i love about this is the the contrasts and just in terms of lighting and in terms of focus are very sharp and very interesting and they do a great job of making it very clear not just from the colors and the design but from the way things are photographed this is a different world you are not in your universe anymore and one of the ways they do that is they've got the the actors and 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 every everybody including Flynn when he is transported into the computer world has this cool suit and helmet and it's got all these neon tracings on it 
But the actors are filmed in black and white. Yeah. And it's the slightly grainy, high contrast black and white. It gives it a very otherworldly and creepy kind of look. I've got in my notes, as far as the cinematography goes, early on, I've got German Expressionism. <laughs> and later on, I've got German Expressionism. <laughs> I can A little ways down, I've got so much effing German Expressionism. <laughs> oh. This is very, very much taking uh, its cues from that style of film with these interesting angles this stark, grainy, contrast-heavy filming uh, that it is at once very immediate and threatening and also some kind of dreamlike. It gives us this weird, lucid nightmare sort of quality. And as Flynn is kind of thrust into this world and then immediately arrested and sent to the game grid... The fact that this visual is kind of jarring at first means that you are just as disoriented as him if you haven't seen this film before. If you're not used to this look because you've watched it as many times as I have. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I see Tron when I close my eyelids. Uh, But it, it, it will be jarring because of that, the difference and by the time you're used to it, that's actually usually about the time that Flynn is getting into the groove of being in here. And the fact that this is gladiatorial combat with the video games he designed is one of the ways the Master Control program has suppressed and contained and weakened all these programs he's, absor- he's pulling to absorb. He, he pulls in a batch of them from whatever system, tosses them onto the game grid, and uses that time to see what's weak and who's valuable to absorb or dispose of. And it's it's highly creepy, but it gives us some really cool action set pieces of these strange combat games. The context for that story-wise, as far as why the MCP is doing these things specifically, is that he's trying to stamp out what is essentially the indigenous religion of the mainframe. He's targeting for death in the uh, on the game grid programs that believe in the users which is very very intriguing for a for a program that is constantly talking with a user and right so he knows the truth about the real world out there and users and there's a program uh called sark who is he is essentially the um the program representing uh, dillinger who is, uh, he is Darth Vader to the MCP's emperor. Very aptly. And, but they keep, Sark and the people loyal to Sark and the MCP keep referring to this, this irrational superstition and this cult of the user. And why do you believe this? There's no proof that there's any user. We are, this is the universe and we are programs and that's it. And yet there are user there there are programs out there who believe in the users, and the users are the their reason for existing. We meet accounting programs, you know, I'm an accounting program. I'm good at what I do, and what I do is to help the users do what they need to do. That's my reason for being. Of course, the users are out there and the users are real. And those are the kind of programs, even if they're accounting programs, they are given I love this line, they are given the standard substandard training. Yes. Sent to the gaming grid. Oh goodness. I I need that as like a I, I want that as a motivational poster. Like you will be given the standard <laughs> stuff, standard training and sent to the game grid. I just want that like oh, that in the break great. room at a workplace. That'd be terrific. Oh goodness. But so, yeah, you're you're assigned an a, a frisbee, an identity disc. Uh yeah, I have a problem with the identity discs. Oh, okay they explain the identity discs and they are they're these big frisbees that essentially clip into your backpack the back or the back of your uniform and encoded in your identity disc is everything you are and everything you've done and your your memories and your experiences and your identity but then they also use those to fight yeah one of the forms of combat and an impromptu form of combat not just in the gaming grid is to throw these identity discs at each other 
And you can block an identity disk with another identity disk, but if you're hit with an identity disk from somebody else, it harms you, but you can your your own identity disk kind of boomerangs back to you and you can catch it. And they're really cool battles. Mm-hmm. But why are they combining your your the physical manifestation of your identity record and your ubiquitous combat weapon? It's like, hey, here, I'm going to issue you your your uh, your real ID uh, certified driver's license. Oh, and by the way, you can fight to the death with it. Because I on, don't get that. Because in a computer, you are putting your concept of self on the line in the combat. You are literally putting yourself into there. It returns to you because it is a part of you. But it, if in order to influence something you are the thing influencing it it is an extension of yourself in a way more information technology directly than anything else the the idea of you know a sword is an extension of the arm for combat this is an extension of the who i am for combat i had gotten too far away from from the the next layer of the metaphor in that these are programs Mm -hmm. and it's a program fighting against another program it's like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Core Wars, the old programming sport, essentially. You load two or more programs into a mainframe, and those programs are supposed to be designed and optimized to take over that mainframe, occupy all of its memory, if at all possible. And mm-hmm. essentially, they have to defend against one another while occupying as much memory and processing power as they can. So that's the kind of thing for which the identity disc battles are a metaphor? Absolutely. Okay, okay, okay I'm sold. I'm going like to it. use a bit of a real-world story of my own life and computer interactions. I had a laptop that I did a number on via a very silly scenario. I installed two antivirus programs on it. They were supposed to work in tandem with each other in order to make sure that anything that one wouldn't catch, the other one would. The problem was that during an update, I think one of them got a little corrupted and had to fix itself. And the other one was doing a scan at the same time. And what I watched is as one, pro- as one antivirus program said, I just found a folder. It's full of things that match with what my records show are these tiny clips I store of what <laughs> viruses look like. It must be absolutely a horrible, and I'm going to delete it for you. And then I get another pop-up that says, something's trying to delete me. <laughs> it must be a virus that I am that I am that is trying to get rid of me and then harm other things on your computer. I'm going to get rid of it for you. And I'm just imagining inside the Tron world, it's, you know, two bounty hunters sitting at the bar and thinking... Wait, this guy kind of looks like the guy I was sent to hunt. And they wind up in a fist fight. When, no, you two were supposed to work together. The entire computer was shot by the end. I had to wipe it and reinstall Windows. That was an amazingly weird day. But I'm just imagining where it's like part of what it is, is what it is fighting against and with. And there's something very much the, the identity disc battles between those two antiviral programs i had that one time all right i like that 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 works that's a, that that is a great example of what i can see this being a metaphor for well, i also don't use more than one program now that's wise <laughs> that is wise and that also tracks with part of the story because as you were saying this is a, an epic quest story so of course there are s- goals within goal uh, uh goals until you get to the final goal of the quest and one of those is to get into contact with a user because the user is going to give the program some information that it needs to get past the MCP and get what it needs. And yeah. if you're a program, essentially you are data, what you know is part of what you are, then it makes sense that they also use the, the identity disk as the vehicle for transmitting large important sets of data from the users to the the programs mm-hmm. in the outer world the real world that we know it's uh flynn's friend 
is sending his security clearance to do the thing Flynn needed to be able to get in there because anyone that is below a certain security clearance has been locked out by Dillinger. So they've got to go in there and upgrade the security clearance on this uh, search program that they've got in order for it to be able to actually find the information. On the inside of the computer, this is, I've been called, and I am being called to be bestowed with a power to smite evil. I must get to the IO tower and get past its guardian, uh, because the MCP has shut these down, and that is going to get me in touch with this higher power. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like, like obtaining an enchanted weapon from... From a higher being kind of moment, but that's farther along in the story. <laughs> yep. Because first, we're stuck on the game grid. Right, right. We're, yeah, we we're had fighting to- our way out. And this is one of those really fun moments because we get to see one of the iconic bits from Tron. Yep, that's right. It's the wacky, weird highlight on the removable floor. <laughs> that was fun and weird. I, honestly, it's a very long scene. It is. It looks cool, though. It I looks love that really scene. cool. It's it's cool and clever, and shows that Flynn is fast at thinking on his feet. Mm-hmm. He, he. It also gives you that moment to show Flynn's moral code. Mm-hmm. This is like like everything else in the gaming grid. This is a, a fight to the death, and it's one on one. Him against some conscripted uh, accounting program, I think it was, or actuarial program. And Flynn learns this game, gets better at it, but refuses to strike a, uh, the, the final shot to kill this other program. He knows it's a program, too, but as far as where he's standing, this is a person who doesn't want to die. He doesn't care if he's been forced into this fight to the death. He's not going to take a life. And that choice is then removed from him. He is still declared the victor and is sent back to the little cell he's kept in after watching his opponent die. That is harsh. Yep. And when programs die, they are derezzed. They face deresolution. Which they use a lot of computer jargon in this movie without necessarily much connection between what it might possibly mean in computer science and computer craft and just what they use it for because it sounds cool in the movie i had, i think that's fine i i it i once was very hung up on that i now just go with it it sounds cool i'm fine yeah it's the most accurate piece of actual tech they ever show is bit <laughs> who is this tiny little like pet creature they run into it a few points who is only able to say yes and no, because he is, in fact, completely binary. There's only yes and no. And, uh, yeah, I I like Bit, and that makes sense. Why he's kind of floating around like that, I don't know, or what he represents, because they're all made of bits. Yeah, it's... Again, yeah. It's, Welcome it's, to it's, my dog. It is one thousandth of myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's uh, it's computery, so it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I I still love that, and I kind of want a, a plushie. <laughs> I want a plushie bit that just makes the noise if you hit it. Kind of like the way um the MCP when it's communicating, especially with Dellinger or with Sark, when it's done, it just wants you know I have spoken. It ends its communications with. End of line. Like, yeah, there is end of line can mean something in data transmission, and but he's just using it like over and out, or I'm not going to say it again, or they're just using it because it seems computery and it's cool. The MCP must have at some point uh, absorbed a program that managed like uh, the lights and and stage systems from for a theater company because he is very very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> he's got flair in a weird way that for all of the things he's targeting he shouldn't. So I'm just assuming <laughs> one of these things. <laughs> but the 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 thing that I was kind of uh, joking around there of after seeing the the strange highlight and the the iconic disc battle we get the other iconic thing of the light cycles. 
that's the I think the first thing people think of when they think Tron are the light cycles. Absolutely. These amazing uh CGI and model displays of these motorcycles that shoot a beam of light out the back that creates a solid wall. And so it's it's competitive snake. <laughs> Although I will get very technical here for a moment because I completely hadn't noticed in all the other times I watched, but this time I did the light cycle program runs on a grid that is smaller in scale than the width of a light cycle. The light cycles are moving along a grid based system, but they are able to move half steps of their own width to the side because some of the actions in order to cut off opponents done in this wouldn't be possible otherwise. That kind of bugs me too. It kind of bugs me because the actual game doesn't play that way. (laughs) And I've played the actual Tron arcade game a lot, or at least um, versions of it that are put onto portable devices. But uh, it bugged me that it was because I'm like, this is programmable. I don't know if I'm annoyed that they're not doing it the way the game does or that the game doesn't do it the way they do. I mean, if it's going to be a grid, stick to the grid. Otherwise, why have a grid? Well, the 0.5 measures on the grid at least allow you to do some intriguing little zigzags, but it kind of also results in some really weird, cheap maneuvers of being able to, like, swerve in front of your opponent just a little bit and make them knock into your jet wall. Although I don't know if they ever call them jet walls in this movie. I don't know if they do. I don't think they do. I don't know that they need to call them anything. It's just, uh, it's obvious what, what happens if you crash into them. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, we see one program hit them and just turn into a pile of tiny cubes on the floor at one point. So it's like, <laughs> oof, that's not good. But that's a fun scene. But it ends with a very odd, fun w- little breakout by sending an opponent careening into a wall that breaks. Why does the wall break? Now I'm thinking, oh, Stack Overflow, he's, he's, he's gone beyond his allocated memory. Oh, that's what that was. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And once they're out of there, they are no longer affixed to a grid system, so that's good. Yeah, so then they're just out there uh, trying to, um, to get the information they need from Alan, Flynn's friend out on the outside, and try, they're trying then to take that information to the MCP to take it down. And we, it's interesting, throughout this, we see Kevin Flynn come to better understanding of where he is. First of all, of course, he thinks it's a dream or something. You know, where he is, what's, what's happening, and how he can choose to relate to these other people, these programs around him. The whole thing, the whole structure of this, it always seemed very Vedic to me. Oh. In that, I mean, it's you could it's kind of, it's kind of messianic in that you've got someone from the higher realm who's come now among the people, the programs, to save them from what's suppressing them. But the fact that we're seeing this primarily not from the point of view of the people, the programs, but from the point of view of this being that has come down from the higher realm to the lower realm, it struck me more kind of as a Vedic avatar. That makes a lot and of sense. It's he is learning something by giving up some of his knowledge of his own divine power to act on others' behalf and to operate in this other world. And as he's understanding more how the world works, he's able to relate what he used to know about how the world works and also understand the new stuff about it that he was never aware of. He never understood what energy from, like, the power supply was like for a program. And it's water, but but it also... All of your little lines and such glow a little, and they get a little giddy. Right. It's water. It's power. It's it's rejuvenation. It's um, it's really everything they rely on. And we we watch him like understand and get into this for a moment. This is cool. You've got an opportunity here. 
And part of what he has to come to terms with is, well, first of all, he does not let on that he's a user. Others recognize there's something special about him, and eventually to the people he's working with who are Tron, and there's another program called uh, Ram, and um, and uh, Yori, another program they meet. He lets them know he's a user, and they immediately expect that he has this foolproof plan with all of his knowledge from above that he knows exactly what he's going to do. He has he is not going to have any problem doing it. We'll follow you. And it's not that easy. He does not know this world well enough to know exactly what to do and how to do it. Yeah, he's he has a goal, but he doesn't have a plan. If anything, uh our title character Tron, this this security program search program is much more of the plan and leader person. Yeah, he is someone who was designed kind of for this military sort of role and more of a more uh, a, a guerrilla or special ops kind of character than, say, the clue program that we saw uh, Flynn trying to use earlier. He's much more autonomous, much more um, inventive, and yet he's still a program and played very well. This is played by Bruce Boxleitner, who plays Kevin Flynn's friend Alan out in the real world. Uh, and does, I think, really a good job with that. Absolutely. He does an amazing job. As much as this is a movie with so much Jeff Bridges in it, this is much more of a Box Lightner film. He has so much... He's. I almost think he has more presence at times. I, I agree. He is from the computer world, and he is of this computer world, and he is a an outstanding individual in it, as opposed to being someone who's out of place and learning. Mm-hmm. Although I do wonder why uh, Tron decides to go get uh, the third of our trio in the very end. Yori? Yeah, why does he go get her? I think there's there's a big, after they get the information they needed from Alan, there's this big gulf that they need to cross, this journey they need to take to get to where the MCP is, because the MCP has got some defenses around it. And I believe that she had knowledge and insight and access to a transportation system that would get them there. There's obviously some connection, other connection between Tron and Yuri, just as there is between their users out in the real world. Yeah. But I think she actually also did have a, a critical role to play in their plan to take down the MCP and free the system. Okay, so this is very much our... Our fighter, the antivirus, our support, the search bar, and our wizard, the very confused user, go on a road trip. <laughs> yes, exactly right. This works. Unfortunately, the uh, actuar actuarial program who uh, escapes the game grid with Tron and Flynn is our pathos death. Yeah, Ram doesn't make it. Ram doesn't make it, but, but he gets to see and kind of also motivate Flynn into using his abilities more during his moment. I, I think, is Ram the first program that to whom Kevin reveals the fact that he's a user? I think so. He's the first to believe him. Because, yeah, Ram, the reason he was sent to the gaming grid to be destroyed was that he believed in the users. He also had more direct in contact with users, being a program that dealt with their finances and such. Right. He had a little bit of a concept of what was going on outside <laughs> in that sense. and. Almost and goes into a little like talk about it on a very technical <laughs> side for a moment. But he, um, you get the he's he's injured throughout this whole thing. Of course, there our heroes are being pursued by uh, tanks and recognizers, which is are these really cool two legged uh, flying machine things. They always reminded me of uh, Japanese, uh, like Shinto gates. Yeah, they are kind of structured similarly, and yet they could fly around and stomp you. And and during that pursuit, early on, Ram is injured. And as he's dying, Flynn tells him, yeah, I, I'm a user. And you get the sense that he he, he derezzes with a sense of peace that he would not have had otherwise. Yeah. He, his faith in the users has been proven to be, to be well warranted. He got to meet a user. In person before he passed to wherever programs pass when they're derezzed. That was that was an interesting scene, and yet 
Flynn couldn't do anything to help him. Flynn couldn't keep him from, from de-resing based on his damage. He was already gone, so... And yet later on, we see another program who is badly injured, for lack of a better term. And Flynn is able to bring that program back from the brink. Oh. And sometimes watching this, I would think, you can do that. Why didn't you do that for Ram, who believed in you so passionately? And then I realized, he's, Flynn is learning. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what it meant to be a user. He did not know he was capable of that. I think if he had known, maybe he could have done that for Ram. But the person he was back then was not capable of it. And I will also give him the benefit of saying that Ram did not originate on the system in question, was a a pulled copy it put into a different database in which he did not have permissions, and was then damaged in a corrupting way. I don't know if he ever hit the recycling bin. I'm pretty sure that uh, being able to recover something to its previous location is much easier if it was something installed properly on the system in the first place. I don't have a feeling that RAM, literally kidnapped from whatever system he started on, was installed properly at first. It is now safe to unplug your teammate. (laughs) Weirdness. Maybe, maybe. And that's me, like, doing the thing where I give it all the credit there because I like the film, but still. I I do, too. I kind of like... The growth of the character as oh, the explanation more. Your explanation's be way better than mine. Mine's just covering its butt. <laughs> Absolutely. You're looking for the, okay, what's the, what's the technical basis for that? <laughs> exactly. Before? But uh, Flynn takes the recognizer that attacked them and repairs it using some user ability. He kind of has an idea of what this program is attempting to do, so he can kind of fix it on the fly a little yeah, by just thinking the code out. Because they're from Space Paranoids, and, and he wrote Space Paranoids. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Tron has gone off to get our third member and obtain the the transport they need. And the two of and uh, Tron and I can never remember her name. Yori. Yori. Tron and Yori run off to the IO tower to obtain the permissions data. And this is where it's like if you didn't think this was high fantasy before, what about the go- what about the wizened sage mounted into the floor <laughs> on a rotating platform? Now, he is the user that corresponds to that guardian of the IO tower, is the person who is like in charge of the experiments in the laser lab. Yeah. That Yori's user worked for. Uh, but now he is, he's not, he works for the MCP because he's being forced to, but not because he believes in what the MCP is doing. So he is persuadable. Mm-hmm. And we see the counterpoint of the same same guy going up to Dillinger's office and uh, complaining about the fact that none of his division can get the work they need to do done with all of these uh, shutdowns and uh, blockouts from the system, and that this MCP program is starting to impact the the actual work people are trying to do. And gets shot down for that in a fight. It's a very good paralleling there. Yeah, because the MCP, he clearly knows about the the reality of the world of the users, but wants to isolate his domain from them so that he can be supreme. Mm-hmm. Also, why do why do we not put more uh, of our like wizened sages on lazy Susans? It makes for some really really wonderful reveal shots where he can just <laughs> spin around in a little circle there, like sitting on the. On in the floor there, yeah, and then like, give his like dramatic speeches. That was very effective. Is that a robe? Is that mid-century furniture? Are you part of the building? What's going on there? It's it's fascinating design. In the word of bit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they make it into the IO tower as it's being attacked by guards, and the iconic poster scene happens. Where he reaches up and the, and his identity disc floats into the sky and glows as it is overwritten with the proper permissions and it returns to him. And he hears Alan's 
voice for a moment. It's it's all very, very cool and dramatic and fun. And it is this, again, a great metaphor for this contact with the divine teaches you things and also changes you, which are one and the same for a program. Yeah. Knowledge is power, and knowledge and power are all these creatures are. They yep. are, they have no more to them than that, in that sense, but they are still beings, and that <laughs> is cool. But then it's a race to the MCP, because they have to hop aboard a solar sailor, and they, they all reunite, and then it's this race, uh, this race across this long stretch of canyon towards this giant building out in the middle of the server where the MCP has taken over. Any, everything around him has become this barren wasteland as he absorbs it all to himself. Yeah, and they have, they have to cross the Sea of Simulation to get there. Yes. This is also known as the Sea of Much Slower Movie Pacing. Yeah, that, um, that whole thing takes much longer than it needs to. So much longer. Oh, and for anyone who likes looking for these in Disney films, find the giant... Obvious, but also kind of hard to see hidden Mickey. Uh, yeah, it's so big, it's hard to make out. It's ho- so big, it's hard to make out. Also, it's one that has a nose, which is not normal for hidden Mickeys. Yeah, this is not just a three circles hidden Mickey. But they have some fun with that. They show this stuff, but it's it's a lot of talking and a lot of slightly trippy music as they sail along. A lot of cool environment shots. And... And the dialogue does kind of solidify some of what we saw people learning and understanding earlier on mm-hmm. about what it means to be a user. Did Flynn really have a plan? What is he capable of, etc.? And then the giant confrontation on the solar sailor happens as the bad guy's ship pulls up alongside them and takes them away. Although they also kind of like make a daring escape for a moment as Flynn, like understanding his computer knowledge, is able to perform an impossible task of rerouting them. <laughs> There's some cool moments in that, but it takes a while to get to them. Again, it just it sort of slows things down. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, they are they're in they're captive when they get to the MCP, aren't they? It's it's a oh thank you 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 have literally brought the thing that could hurt me right to me so that I can make sure no one else can ever use it and you're probably powerful enough I'll absorb you now or kill you either way we'll bring you over here this is what we'll do you know and so they carry them the rest of the way but in lockup and I gotta admit, the for having such a slow section here, the end of this movie is a almost too fast to com- comprehend rush at times. Yeah, they could have taken some of the time from the journey to elaborate on the, the final conflict a bit more. Because suddenly the MCP is lining up a bunch of older programs, including the, uh, the old Sage from the IO Tower and a couple of other programs, uh, gathering them up to absorb them all into himself. We've got uh, the the army leader, second in command to the MCP, uh, signing Flynn and Yora to death via like grid that derezzes their ship, which just seems a little odd. And we've got. Uh, a kind of one-on-one fist fight being planned between uh, the the army leader and Tron, which all kind of breaks down into a lot of cross-cutting from thing to thing to thing. Right, lots of lots of again, this gets kind of German expressionistic with all these very tight close-ups of people who are very angry at one another, and you flip back and forth. But there were are parts of that final battle between Tron and Sark. That are pretty awesome. Oh, absolutely. It's a big uh, uh, identity disc battle, of course. So they're slinging discs at each other. And then when it looks like Tron has the upper hand, the MCP decides to make Sark giant. Yeah, suddenly it's Tron in a kaiju movie. (laughs) I'm just imagining on a modern system. It's just a pull up a control panel. Why is Sark.exe taking up so much of the CPU suddenly? <laughs> it's like, uh, it's getting really high up there. 
Try, try close program or something. Very cool visuals in that. Very though. cool. Very got the 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 Sark who was wounded has this head wound that's kind of leaking sparks, and now he's giant and mm. he's he's trying to crush Tron. A uh, uh, shout out to the fact that this also makes a very wonderful Kingdom Hearts fight in uh, the Tron world of that game. <laughs> very odd tangent, but that was a fun segment. Anyway. Cool. Yeah. Uh, annoying, but fun. But yeah, it's a really, it's a really cool and interesting battle because we've seen some disc battles before, but this is like the highest tier competition where they're slinging stuff like around and behind each other and such. It gets cool. I mean, it's still Frisbee tricks on a green screen, yeah, but, but it's, they're awesome. Frisbee. They're tricks. awesome. Frisbee tricks. Meanwhile, uh, Flynn is like, Figuring out how to avoid being derezzed by the uh, by the uh, giant boundary that they're being presented with, and see as the battle's going on, and that the MCP is pulling in more power once again, and decides to to make the biggest play he can. The MCP wants information. The MCP wants to absorb stuff. He'll give it something to absorb. And he hops in and jumps down the center of the MCP. Which is just a really cool dramatic moment. It also makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it's that there's just even digitized a user has so much information density mm -hmm. that an attempt to absorb it is disabling to the MCP at least long enough for Tron to deliver his identity disk with the payload of code in it from Alan that's going to uh, break down the MCP. And we get to see what the MCP actually looks like as it dies. <laughs> in a very gruesome, weird way. Yeah. The MCP is like a little... Its original form is this old, like, database program just typing on this old typewriter very creepy it looks like this giant cylinder with an animated face spinning around when it's in full power but as you see its layers disappear it turns really wizened and creepy it is very much the wizard of oz reveal but in the most proper antagonistic <laughs> way instead of the uh twist mode this is this is straight up the man behind the curtain was awful and we are kicking his butt but he's not the giant face you think he is. <laughs> so, yeah, it is very much a classic epic fantasy quest structure. Absolutely. That happens to play out in the world that exists inside the NCOM mainframe. And at the very end, having pulled himself in through the MCP, which had the control of the laser program, Flynn is ejected out. He's, he's reprinted back out in the real world. And by the way, things on the grid are measured in cycles. It's a lot longer time inside than it is outside. He hasn't been gone for very long on the outside. So he comes back and it's just there. He spent what seems like more than the run of time of the movie. This has been an hours and hours oh, of journey. Yeah, this, this is like been... a couple of days of, of, of quest, I think, it seems to me sometimes. Yeah. And he's been gone for minutes. Because it's all about the speed of the cycles inside the machine. But he escapes and makes it out, uh, makes it to the world, and it prints up the information he needed. The MCP is corrupted and deleted inside the system. And I guess with it gone, it was no longer preventing him from getting to the um, the files that he would ordinarily have access to, and he could print out all this information about them. When they were created, who created them? Oh, it was Kevin Flynn. Who changed the data after the fact? Oh, Dillinger. And Dillinger comes in to find that the very, very cool, slick, like, monitor set inside his black tabletop he had is there just kind of telling him, like, critical fault error and here's the damning evidence and he's just like uh 
Yeah, it was a monitor and a glass touch type keyboard. That was really that, cool. For 82, that was pretty awesome. That was really awesome. I want that now. But you know, Dylan Dillinger seems defeated. And then we just like smash cut to like what a year later and Kevin Flynn is like the president of Encom. Yeah, I'm never entirely sure how that works out. Oh, Kevin Flynn, he was the guy who wrote our most popular video games. So yeah, he's gonna be president. I'm assuming that this was a, well, now that I've got this evidence, hey, board of directors, how's that lawsuit sound? Board of directors. How about we have a settlement agreement that involves X amount of the company in stock instead, and that puts you at the board on president? (laughs) Okay. I can sue you out of existence and or bring to light evidence that there were programs inside your mainframe that were attempting to access the Pentagon. Or, or we could make other arrangements. And I guess that makes sense. It ends with Kevin Flynn hopping out of a helicopter and uh, saying hello to his friends by using the greetings programs that he'd, <laughs> he'd been told and he'd gotten used to saying on the grid. So that still had an effect on him. This is still in his mind. He's not. Yeah, he never little, he might have left there, but he never quite left it seems to some way. A little creepy now if he now thinks of other people as programs, but a little creepy, yeah. But although maybe he's wondering, okay, maybe we're programs, in which case who's our user? We've got some I mean it's it's a fun adventure quest movie. It is I mean, we've summarized the entire story here and it's not that deep in narrative but it is deep in visual and concept in some ways and you know you don't need that complex a story to have a good movie no especially to introduce the ideas and the world that this that tron is presenting this is doing a good job by using a story structure that you can grasp onto it's not a a complicated weave of narrative it's 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 linear without being negative in that sense. And that's where you sometimes have to have to make choices. You can tell a complicated story in a setting that people can instantly and intuitively understand. Or you can tell a fairly straightforward story in a setting that takes a lot of effort to see and absorb and understand. Uh, and this takes that second one. It's the it's the the setting is so complicated, you couldn't tell a complicated story, or you'd lose your audience. Yeah, I still just love the visual style of this. It's like well. like Donnie Darko, easy to understand setting, really complicated story. Oh, that's a good that's a yeah. good counterpoint. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, Tron is a an easy to understand story in a complicated setting because you can't do complicated complicated without it being impenetrable you can't do easy easy without it being boring right so same thing with star wars which i'm sure is on the mind of disney when they were making this in 1982 oh there's two star wars movies now and they're both really popular absolutely Uh, we need a fantasy movie with a cool uh setting they succeeded i love it it's my sort of thing well that sounds like we're getting to our our questions absolutely so it's a movie I don't know. I, I'm 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 dying to know what you're going to say in answer to this. Screen or no screen? How big a screen you got? <laughs> okay, yeah. l- let me put a, let me put this for a moment. One time when I sat down to watch this movie on actually the same you mentioned Donnie Darko on the same laptop as the Donnie <laughs> Darko uh, Darko mode laptop, I put in the disc to watch this movie, and I went to go sit down in my chair to watch it. I instead wound it wound up kneeling next to my bed watching the entire movie on the computer because once it started running I didn't move I was glued to the screen I never made it to my chair my soda yeah. went flat sitting next to the chair I never sat down in because I was still glued to it even during the slow solar sailor moment I kept watching <laughs> I'm with you there. Screen this movie. Screen this. It is film. worth seeing. It is fun. And yeah, you know, I got I saw this uh, when it was released on a big screen. Ooh. And it is a great experience on a big screen. Once the world has um uh stabilized and movie theaters are a thing again, maybe when our beloved Alamo Draft House Cinema 
is uh, is open again, we can uh, suggest that they have a screening of Tron someday. Oh, they if they did a Tron night, that would be amazing. So yeah, I would say screen this, and and I'm hoping someday to get to see it on a big screen again. Absolutely, because some of those, even some of the simplest shots, like the the sequence where uh, Flynn has just been digitized. And he's like falling through these geometric shapes, or we have a point of view shot falling through these geometric shapes before he ends up in the computer world. They're kind of Fantasia-like, and they're just very impactful on a big screen. I hadn't considered how much this has Fantasia elements. There is a lot of that just audio-visual mood-setting combination going on. Got a good point there. So, yeah, we're in agreement to screen this movie. Oh, absolutely. So, our our second uh, question is, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, I always want more Tron. <laughs> and do you hear that? Do you hear that thumping bass in the background? It sounds like Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> There's a thing we've got to talk about on this, ain't there? Oh, you think so? I think so. we're going to have to, but in terms of the, uh, but, uh, and that, that's a little bit of acknowledging that for right now, but in terms of the original Tron story, the original look, the original feel, I think it is a look and a style that is very rooted in not only its day, but the technology of its day. And I want more Tron, but I think, but I definitely think that Tron is something that if it wants to keep its stylistic, if it wants to keep its story elements the same, it can. But in order to have its, its concept of being inside a computer, it has to be able to evolve. So I don't want it to get stuck with too much overly specific about what looks like Tron as long as it understands to keep certain elements together. So if you were facing and making a decision just about Tron, the 1982 movie, would you prefer a revival? More stories where the story of the original was still canon? Or a reboot where we're addressing the concepts of the original but we're starting fresh? I think either one would work. I think a reboot would have to divert from that clean story that we were describing too much. So I'm guessing I'm asking revival in that sense because the concept of the world is big enough that there's other stories to be told. I mean, just thinking about it in that day and age, what's the story of a program on magnetic tape Hmm. pulled into a system? Kind of this wandering bounty hunter character, this wandering Ronin who is literally downloaded onto a system to do a thing and then goes back into the sunset once he came when it's done. (laughs) What's some of these other stories about the world inside the computer that the technology of that era gives you? Oh, yeah. I I think I'm with you. I'd probably, I would be interested in either one, be more interested in in a revival. But you're right. They're contemporary stories set in the late 70s, early 80s with those constraints in place. Mm-hmm. That would be very interesting. Imagine a, imagine the weirdness uh, for a, a program and a, a city of programs in this at during this time, where there are enough advancements in some of their tech that there's things being changed and upgraded and 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 such. Where you have a moment where it's like an earthquake, and everything goes <laughs> black for a moment. You start up again, and you're like, huh? But you look off and there's an entirely new landmass. Because someone expanded the server. They put a new bay on it. And literally, like, an earthquake that doubles your continent happened. Is a whole story you can get. And there's some... There's some benefit to the fact that technology at the time was a little bit more limited in terms of its connectivity that allows for some of these stories to play out in interesting ways because they're not as aware of the users. These things are a little bit more mystical and distant. And that has some fun elements to it. You could have an entire journey to the West narrative during this time 
<laughs> because the idea of being put into like a long-term storage system and having to like go retrieve a piece of information and bring it back from long-term storage is a whole thing. I like it. So I think we're agreed. Absolutely. Screen this movie and give us more. Oh, absolutely. You want to just give them more? I think so. We will be back. We'll be back. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of, of media from other times and places. And uh, in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? You can find me on the grid on Twitter as Item Crafting, or on YouTube as Item Crafting, and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And you can find me most places as by Matthew Porter. You can find me at by Matthew Porter on Twitter, uh, by Matthew Porter on Twitch. Uh, you can find me at by MatthewPorter.com. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com, where you will find all of our past episodes and you will find um, links to our Discord, links to our shop if you like to buy t shirts and coffee mugs and things, a link to our Patreon, where we post. Uh, special bonus episodes uh, talking about things usually that don't quite fit into uh, our usual topics for um, the main podcast. So if you can support us there, uh, terrific. And speaking of our past episodes, yes, it's really terrific that we're doing Tron here at the beginning of November, because this is the second anniversary of uh, the podcast. We started this in the first week of November 2018. Oh, absolutely. And this is fun because... The the Tron franchise is one of those first things that we really wound up talking with each other about, and it is definitely one of the original podcast like uh, prototypes in that sense because of how we were to wind up discussing it and connecting over it and its sequel. <laughs> so I love that aspect. Well, thanks again for uh, for for downloading. Thank you uh, once again for listening, and uh, we will be back. In the meantime. Go find something new to watch.